they yearn to learn and to be a part of the American community, right? Um, they want to participate. They want to contribute. And although they might be old in age, a lot of times people give up on refugee adults. And a lot of programs are geared towards the youth because people believe that the youth have more potential. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Our guest for today is Isaac James. Isaac works as a youth education and care assistant with the Refugee Empowerment Program in Memphis, Tennessee. He also volunteers with the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Coalition to empower refugees through politics. He currently holds the position of Refugee Congress Delegate for Tennessee. Your host for today is me, Anusha Ghosh, and my peer, Thrisha Mote. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode on Seeking Refuge podcast. Today, I am joined with my peer, Thrisha Mote, and Isaac James, who is a prominent refugee activist in Tennessee and a refugee delegate for the Refugee Congress. Isaac, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's uh, incredible to be a part of this podcast and to see what students are doing across the country. It's always, as a former refugee, heartwarming to see the effort of collective communities bring the voice of the refugee to ensure that their dignity, their sort of way of life, their integration into the U.S. and their local communities is done through a refugee lens and an immigrant lens. And too often, that's not the case. And so from the bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you for allowing me the privilege and opportunity to be a part of this podcast. And I hope that what we speak about today is enlightening, allows us to see the value of being part of a community and celebrate the differences that communities have. So once again, thank you um, for allowing me to be a part of this. Absolutely. And thank you so much for donating your time to the podcast. Um, I can't wait for our listeners to be able to hear your voice and be able to connect with you uh, through this episode. So uh, my first question is, what would you like to share about your personal story and background? So my name is Isaac. I work for Refugee Empowerment Program in Memphis, Tennessee. My place of birth is a refugee camp in Kenya. So from my existence, I am a refugee. My family were refugees from Sudan. So during the civil wars in the 90s, they fled into neighboring countries and they traveled through the Congo, the Uganda, and eventually ended up in Kenya where the hopes of being resettled um, was more there uh, than in other countries. It's there where I was born. It's there where I lived a life in which I didn't understand what it meant to be a refugee because I was just a child, but yet I still sort of suffered with that because I didn't have the basic needs that other children had. From there, we got resettled to the States in 2001, into Memphis, and this is where we've been for the majority of our time here. In Memphis, as a child of a single mother, I didn't have a parent figure in the home because my mother had to work three jobs. This is challenging because refugee children are in a new environment, in a new space, in which 
they are developing social and emotionally, right? And so without proper guidance, it becomes an added traumatic experience because in the spaces that they're in, such as the schools, kids are being, they're getting bullied because they're different, right? Because they speak another language, because they look different. And so growing up, I was always ostracized and bullied. I remember in the, in the apartment complex that my family moved to, this African-American kid, when he saw me, he punched me randomly and told me to go back, to go back to my home. And so here I am as a Black refugee, a Black immigrant in a space where I'm with other individuals that identify um, as Black, but yet my Black was different than them. This is where I first learned about the complexities of one colorism, but the conflicts between sort of black immigrants, right? And the, uh, the black African-American community that is here. And so my upbringing was one where I didn't fit with those that are within my same racial category. When I was with other racial categories, I didn't fit with them as well. Um, and so I was always sort of confused and struggling to find out where my place was in society. And unfortunately, this is what's true of refugees and immigrants still today. Uh, and gives way as to why I do what I do. That was really powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, when I came across uh, your page on the Refugee Congress, and as well looking at your LinkedIn page, I saw that you were involved in a lot of efforts to provide support to uh, refugee and displaced uh, people, families in the U.S. So I was wondering, um, if you could talk about uh, the your academic background, your professional career, and how you've kind of introduced your experience uh, being a refugee and how you've um, contributed back to that community. Okay, one of the sort of alarming facts that is out there, um, I believe is less than 3% of refugees enter higher education. So that's college, university, post-grad. And so when I think about academically, that has always been an environment in which I, as a refugee, didn't belong. So the systems that were in place didn't allow or enable refugees to enter those spaces and receive the support that they need to be able to feel welcome, feel comfortable, and believe that higher education was for them. Kids that enter higher education are only first-generation college kids, um, and so they're the first ones in their family to, to go. But if they don't have that support system there, then they're most likely to sort of leave. That was sort of my fear of entering sort of academic space. Uh, in high school, I struggled. I think I finished with like a 1.8 GPA, <laughs> and it was something in which I always thought that it wasn't for me, right? I went to undergrad at Rollins College. I studied uh, public policy because I knew that policy is where you begin to make communities, societies more inclusive, and you begin to ensure the needs of your diverse um, constituents can be met. And so I think about the ways in which academically it wasn't best suited for me or other refugees. I think about the way transportation doesn't provide for the nuances of being a refugee. 
refugee and an immigrant. But think about the way that healthcare systems, right, are not set up to assist refugees and immigrants in their most needed ways. So how is it that I, as someone who has had these experience, how can I best make change happen? And I believe that is at the policy level. So educating myself about how policy works, the intricacies of it, how bills are created, how bills become popular, how they die, what is the long-term impact of a policy, allows me to be equipped with the skill set and the knowledge to advocate. Uh, I do it now currently at the nonprofit level for a more robust uh, system in which policies are equitable, they are reflective of the diverse communities, and they actually empower long-term and sustainably these communities. So my professional career has sort of taken, has gone um, with my with that desire. So right now I serve as the diversity, equity, and inclusion coordinator at Refugee Empowerment Program here in Memphis, Tennessee. And in this role, I speak with city officials, county officials. I speak with other nonprofits. I speak with the school systems about the experiences that our community members have faced and what hurdles are there that needs to be addressed. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk about one hurdle uh, right off the bat, and that's within transportation. So if I could share this story, about three or four years back, there was a group of refugee families that were just resettled into Memphis. As they were resettled, it was apparent that they needed to earn income, that they needed a job, to be able to provide and pay the bills that they had. So they all worked in the same sort of warehouse and they didn't have transportation, but they found someone in which they came to agreement with that if they paid this individual gas money, then he would transport them back and forth from home to work. So as this individual picked them up and took them to work, and they worked the late shift. So they working from like 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. type shift. As that individual took them to work, he wouldn't take them back home. So imagine you just paid this guy, according to the agreement you had, the gas money to be able to be taken to work and back home. But this person is just leaving you at your work. So he's taking your money and not holding to his end of the bargain. When that happens, I get a phone call saying, Isaac, we need a ride home. And this is three in the morning, you know? Can you come and get us? And I would. But what this translates to, right, is the vulnerability of refugees and immigrants is taken advantage by, by many. The barriers that they are to transportation enables these atrocities to happen. So if you are a refugee and immigrant in the state of Tennessee, the knowledge test for your permit is only in English and Spanish, right? So if you don't speak either of those languages, if you don't understand any of those languages, how are you able to get a permit? And then move on to a driver license, right? It's very hard. And even if you were to be able to, let's say, 
get a permit, you would still need to be taught how to drive. Many of the schools that are here in the state of Tennessee, all those instructions are in the English language. So how is it would you, would you learn how to drive? So from that, I started teaching uh, refugees and immigrants how to drive within Memphis, right? I would have a translator with me and we would spend, you know, mornings or evenings and the weekends learning how to drive so that the, um, the actions of those who see the vulnerability of refugees and immigrants and take advantage of that, that can be stopped. But also the opportunity for them to have transportation, to transport themselves to work, take their kids to school, to go to doctor's appointments, they can be empowered to do that. And one thing that I tell the students is, as I empower you, my goal is to have you empower others, so your family members. So to have a snowball effect in which, as one is gaining the knowledge and the skill set to drive, they are also gaining the knowledge and the skill set to teach so that others aren't as vulnerable and go through the same experience that they go through. So this is where I talk about the uh, knowledge of public policy is able to combine with advocacy so that I can go into the legislator and say, we need to expand uh, the languages for the knowledge test and also consider a way in which when someone is taking the driving test, they could have a translator either through phone or in person where they're just saying what it is that that individual needs to do, right? At this point of age, GPS is in existence. So people can just use GPS to get around. You don't necessarily need to think in English to turn right or turn left or to understand red light, yellow light, or green light. It's just in order for you to get your license, you need to be, you need to be able to understand English commands. And if you're not there yet, then you then your access to transportation is blocked. And therefore, if access to transportation is blocked, then your ability to go to work consistently, your ability to take your kids to school, your ability to go to grocery stores, your ability to go to doctor's appointments, all that is in jeopardy because you'll be dependent on either someone else or on a transportation system uh, that is not equipped to handle um, or to assist refugees and immigrants. Yes, thank you so much for that. And I, I'm really glad that you, you were able to discuss like, you know, the systemic barriers that face uh, refugees and displaced persons. I was wondering, uh, you mentioned quite a lot, uh, the organization that you work with, the Refugee Empowerment Program. Um, a lot of our listeners uh, can be refugees and are also refugee activists. So I was wondering if you could expand on the specific services that the Refugee Empowerment Program provides, as well as any other refugee initiatives that you are a part of. Absolutely. Um, so Refugee Empowerment Program is the nonprofit that I worked with. It was started 20 years ago um, by a single mother of five kids. She came to the U.S. Um, with her five kids, and then she had to adopt about eight of her nieces and nephews because her sister had passed away. So imagine uh, um, you're a single mother. English is your fifth language, right? So you're learning it as a fifth language. Um, and you're in a new community, in a new environment that's completely 
different. Uh, you are the head of household um, for about 13 um, individuals, um, and you have to provide for them. Uh, you have many mouths to feed. So as she was resettled in Memphis, she saw how challenging it was to be able to provide for the range of needs that her kids had and also her nieces and nephews, right? So she had to figure out school, where to take her kids to school, how to take them to school. She had to figure out um, how to apply for benefits. She had to figure out where to go for groceries, right? All these things as a newcomer into a space, you need social capital to be able to best transition into that area. And so because of the way in which that initial year was for her, she sought to create an organization that brought in the larger sort of Memphis and Chevy County community with refugees and immigrants so that that social capital is there. As these newcomers are learning about their new space, they have, the, they have support to be able to navigate. So RAP was started. Um, and, and fun fact, uh, it was started by my mother. Um, and so I was the first of the 12 kids uh, that participated in the after-school program here at REP. Uh, we have expanded. So we do after-school programming for elementary, middle, and high school kids. We also now have started academic support for college kids. Because as I said earlier, I think there's less than 3% of refugees uh, in the whole world that enter higher education. Support shouldn't just end at K through 12. Uh, college enables students to go further, right? If you're thinking about creating generational changes, the college education enables that. And so we shouldn't just stop at K through 12. So we provide academic support for college kids. On the adult side of things, we do adult English classes. Uh, we do citizenship classes. So over the past year, we've had about 45 of our adults become U.S. citizens. So that's awesome. Uh, we also provide different program opportunities. So last summer, we had a entrepreneurship curriculum for the adults um, where they did an entrepreneurship pitch at the end of the summer. And I believe the winner won either $10,000 or $15,000, uh, which is incredible, right? As a staff, we have staff that speak three plus languages. Uh, and so as I mentioned the language barrier earlier on, for new refugees and immigrants as an organization, we know that that's a huge issue. And so having staff that speak three plus languages allows us to assist these new community members as they go to doctor appointments, as they go to, to the schools to register their, their kids, as they apply for jobs and have interviews. So the goal is to walk alongside refugees and immigrants um, as, you know, as they are in a new space and sort of not sure of what to do, right? The best way to empower somebody is to walk alongside them. And so we've seen that. So that's a little bit about our organization and what we do. Uh, I don't know if you want to ask any after questions to that, but. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, that's it's so good to see that there is such a wide range of opportunities offered through this program. And I know specifically one that you mentioned was how they provide homework help and um, assist teaching English to adults. So I was wondering what your personal experience was connecting with you 
refugees and tutoring them in English? Yeah, so I, I actually, uh, I've taught the level one English class. So these are individuals that are um, illiterate, even in their own language, in terms of reading and writing. And so they're coming to the U.S. without the skill set of, of being able to read in any language nor write in any language. And in the adult level one class, right, that's where we're doing the basics, right? The ABCs, the one, two, threes, getting them comfortable with building blocks to where they need to be. Um, I tell you, I, I love the adult level one class uh, because these are people that range in age from, you know, 20 into the 40s or 60s. Uh, and just to see their tenacity to learn and their commitment to be able to learn English to best equip themselves. I think a lot of times people might wrongly criticize ref refugees as people that are looking to take a free ride, but it's, it's very hard um, to be able to come in a new country at the age of let's say like 40 or 50 and sit in an English class, right? Because in that mindset, right? you are adding another language to the fourth or fifth one in which you know, and English is not the easiest of the languages, right? Not at all. And so the confidence and the will of these individuals was empowering for me um, to just see them on a day-to-day -day basis come in. And even if on their faces it shows that they are not understanding the material for the day, that doesn't dishearten them from coming the next day to learn, right? And so I've been able to connect with many of the adults in a manner in which they have shown me the beauty of individuals and the beauty of humanity in the sense that they yearn to learn and to be a part of the American community right? Um, they want to participate. They want to contribute. And although they might be old in age, a lot of times people give up on refugee adults. And a lot of programs are geared towards the youth because people believe that the youth have more potential. But the adults have dreams as well. They have goals, right? They have ambitions. And so why would we neglect them of what they envision to make out of a life here in America um, and just focus on another subset group. Although that group does need attention, but the adults themselves are also humans. They also bring a lot into communities. And so being part of that, um, it was humbling, it was enlightening, it was empowering. Um, and to this day, the adults in which I've assisted to teach English, they are the most welcoming and appreciative group of people there is. Um, I love teaching level one adult English and I always encourage others, if you have the opportunity, take that opportunity uh, because it will, I believe it will better you more than it will better <laughs> most people, so. 
Yes, that was incredible. And I actually have another follow-up question. So um, refugees, they, they can come from any country. So I'm assuming that you may have had the opportunity to work uh, with a refugee or displaced person um, outside of your culture. So I was wondering, how do you bridge that cultural gap? Uh, and, you know, yeah, just how do you bridge that cultural gap? The cultural gap is there, but the similarity of us being refugees enable at least for the door to be cracked, right? Different cultures have different ways of engaging with strangers. The fact that I kind of have the same story in being a refugee as those that are from different refugee backgrounds than me allows that door to be cracked. What goes from there is my ability to show these individuals that I am here for empowerment, for support in a real and genuine sense. Uh, I'll give you an example. I recently helped move an Afghan family from Memphis to Sacramento. Now, the Afghan community is from a different culture than mine, right? This is a family of a single mom, eight kids, six of the older kids are women and the younger two are guys. And so I am the, the guy that is entering into their homes, entering into their space, right? To help them in areas in which they need help. But in many cases, right, I'm a stranger to them, right? So how is it that they're able to allow a stranger to enter their home to be able to meet their needs as they are vulnerable to me. I think it's the way in which you sort of engage with people. If people see that you're sincere, if they can tell your heart, then they allow themselves to be more open and welcoming and vulnerable. The work of social service requires people to have a heart in which um, enables them to see other people as people and to meet them where they are. And I always tell people this, when you meet people where they are, when you meet them and don't require them to come to your level, that's when people begin to be felt seen, they begin to felt heard, and the confidence that they can progress and to find success in this new environment begins to happen. As I engage with people of other cultures than me, I have to keep that in mind, right? I have to keep it in mind that they are coming from traumatic experiences. They are coming from places in which society has done them wrong. The other countries, right? Other people, right? And so when they look at me, it can be a question of what will this guy do? what contribution would he make or what would he take away, right? And so I am always guided by the knowledge that there will be cultural barriers, that there will be sort of things that might be interpreted interpretedly in the wrong manner. But if I come from a humble, uh, a humbleness that shows that one, I see you as a human, Right. I see your value and I will always protect and advocate for your value. If that door is cracked, 
what are the actions I take next, either allow that door to continue to open or allow it to close. And so I have to be cognizant of that. And I also have to educate myself about other cultures. <laughs> and that's a, that, that, that can cover a lot of the challenges that arise, right? Too often people go into uh, different homes and don't know the cultural background that is there. Um, and so as a, uh, as a human, I need to educate myself on the diversity of the cultures to ensure that I'm not, you know, embarrassing myself or making others feel uncomfortable. Yes, thank you so much for that answer. Um, and honestly, like, you know, it's something that I can see applicable to anyone. And I'm really glad that you were able to share your experience, um, especially an experience that can be really difficult um, just because of like the breadth of cultures that are present in the US um, and in the world. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, my other question for you is, uh, so the media um, takes the time to highlight refugee issues, but because the media is only getting maybe um, a penny hole of a glimpse um, of refugee issues compared to what maybe refugee workers and activists who directly work um, with refugees and displaced people um, see, I was wondering, do you have an issue that you would like to highlight uh, on this podcast that may has not may have not been reaching uh, popular media uh, and something that you believe needs more advocacy? Yeah, I think um, definitely a lot can be sort of said about what are the gaps in in the media in terms of truly showcasing the refugee organizations or refugees themselves. I think a lot of times these medias um, are run by non-refugees themselves. And so the, the things in which they highlight might come from sort of a, sort of a Western perspective um, or a non-refugee perspective. Um, I think for me, it would go back to the transportation issue, right? I don't often see the, the need for changes in transportation policy for refugees and immigrants. As I said earlier, the ability to have reliable transportation allows you to do so much more, right? Imagine if you don't have any transportation and you've just come as the head of household and you've got five, six kids in which need to be enrolled in the school system, need to go get their shots, um, need to go get food for. So when you don't have the reliable transportation do those things, then it impacts your ability to provide for yourself and your family, which has long-term effects as well. And so I know that in different states, you know, access to transportation is different. But holistically across the U.S. and the systems, access transportation isn't equitable, right, um, for many refugees and immigrants. And I think the ability for media to sort of highlight that can push advocacy and policy forward to ensure that newcomers are given equitable systems so that they can pursue their dreams and their ambitions and have their needs met. Um, one day, I hope that the state of Tennessee through the efforts that I hope to do, can transform the transportation policy to expand it um, in terms of the knowledge test, in terms of translation for the driving test, because I, I, I think 
that refugees and immigrants are a big contributor economically to the state of Tennessee and other states um, throughout the U.S., and they can even be more of a contributor when uh, the barriers to transportation is um, uplifted, right? So right now, if people don't have access to transportation, then they go to other countries, I mean, to other states, sorry, other states to purchase um, licensings. Um, and so we don't want to push uh, refugees and immigrants towards that avenue. Um, we want them to go through the systems. But at the end of the day, you can understand that, right? Because they, they believe that they need to do what they need to do to be able to provide for their family, right? If it's going to take longer for you to learn English, to, to be able to take the knowledge test, to be able to take the driving test, then it is for you to go purchase a license and come and buy a car and start working immediately. Then you're going to take that route where you're going to go purchase a license, right? Because your family is hungry. Your bills have to be paid, right? And so if those things are not being met, then you as a parent, you as an individual is going to do what you think is best to be able to have those needs met. And so... I understand that. That's not a avenue in which um, we want to persist. I mean, we want, and I think we should put our efforts in um, increasing access to transportation, making it more equitable for different communities, so that people can really be integrated and begin to make strides um, in in their ambitions and their goals and providing for their family. Yes, thank you so much for that. And. Um... Throughout this entire interview, you've highlighted uh, issues that you would like to be addressed, and you've also highlighted um, nonprofits that you are a part of. Um, my question is to you, um, how can the Seeking Refuge podcast, how can we help you uh, in uplifting your initiatives? Um, for example, in Henry's uh, episode, um, he highlighted how he needs more volunteers for his uh, up and coming nonprofit. Um, so I was just wondering if you have any needs that we can meet um, as, a, uh, as a podcast organization. Um, I think in our after school programs, um, we need more snacks. So um, I don't know if you guys can send snacks over, but the reason why I say this is because um, for after school programs, the county gives uh, county county has a snack program, right? An at-risk program for um, communities where children are living in the poverty level and there typically isn't enough food in the household. But the snacks that are part of this program is just like a a orange juice and a cheese, right? So imagine if that's all you had after after school was a orange juice and a cheese it then you go home to an empty fridge right at the end of the day you know that program just gives you something for you know 30 or, or an hour of hunger and then after that you go back to a home in which you know there's nothing there and so as a as an organization right we strive to meet those gaps and to provide in what needs that our communities have. And so to answer that question, I think the ability to provide more snacks for our kids um, will definitely go far in the long run because when a child is hungry, it's hard for them to focus 
uh, do their schoolwork. And even in the after school space, we've seen that, right? So our, for example, our, our Muslim kids who have dietary restrictions, if the school doesn't provide options that are halal for them, uh, then they go throughout the day without eating. And so when they come into our space, you know, we can give them a cheese it and in a juice box, right? But if they haven't eaten all day, then what's the cheese in the juice box gonna do, right? That can satisfy their hunger to an extent, right? But once they leave, if they're going into a home um, where the family is cash strapped and they don't have the finances to um, fill their refrigerator, and then that child also, you know, will go to a home in which they, they could not eat. So um, it, it is important for us to, to see that, to, to hear that, and to respond to that, and to push efforts um, to get more food for our kids uh, while, as they're in this space, because they're here from about three to seven. So that's a long time. So I want to make sure that as they enter this space and leave this space, that you know, their bellies are full with some, for some, good, some good food, and uh, they can lay their head you know, on their on their pillow cover um, without the pain of hunger. Yes. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. So go, go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. I was just going to say we and our listeners love to learn about ways to get involved. So thank you for sharing. Um, and so now I just wanted to look more into the future, and I wanted to ask you: Is there something you hope to accomplish in the future? Like, what are some of your future goals? Man, I I want to end world poverty. Is that can I say that on this podcast? <laughs> it is a future goal, um, but I, I'm, I'm shooting for the stars. And, and I think the reason why I, I sort of say this, because a lot of people say, set a goal that's attainable, right? And I have no problem with that. Um, I think we all should set goals that are attainable. But shooting for something like this keeps me relentless. It keeps me pushing, Right. Because although I might not be able to end world poverty, but the passion that I have to do so, um, I think will translate to doing incredible things and incredible work. Um, a couple of years ago, I studied abroad in Morocco. Um, and while I was in Morocco, I started an organization called Friends of Migrants Refugees at the school in which I studied at. And so this organization sought to build bridges between uh, refugees, immigrants, and Moroccan college students, because that's the future. Uh, they're the future of Morocco. They're the business leaders. Uh, they're the political leaders. Um, they're developing sort of the social norms in Morocco in the hopes of giving them the opportunity just to speak, um, to know more about each other, and to begin to conversate about how can we make life better for each other uh, is, is a goal to make Morocco a more sort of equitable, inclusive space, right? And so I share that story because part of my future endeavors is to do more international work, do more international aid work in hopes of building bridges, right? Um, developing friendships to aim for that goal of ending sort of global poverty and what comes with that, right? And so it's great to be a part of this podcast because I think in a sense, you know, you two listening to me and we're sort of building a commonality uh, and friendship, right? Uh, and sort of lights our fire to move to move forward, right? To do more good. Um, and I think 
the opportunity to be able to engage with those that are different than me, that are in different spaces than me, uh, that have a interest and a yearning to know more, but also a heart, um, a heart to be able to make change happen, right, is a recipe um, to creating a society that is more inclusive and equitable. Um, so I, I guess I would say, I guess I would say to inward poverty and also to change hearts so that, that more people can, can see that they can uh, make the world a better place and that those that are different than them are not a threat, right? Um, but a source of, of beauty and, and inspiration um, and, and collaboration um, and unity and, and, and joy and, and celebration of what this world uh, is. I do believe this world is beautiful, although it faces many challenges um, and also what it can, it can become. Uh, we don't have to allow the, the the struggles and the suffering which we see today to make us think that there is no hope for the future, right? There is hope for the future. And the hope begins when we are in community, when we are in a relationship, and uh, we are honest and vulnerable about um, who we are as humans and, and, and how it is that we want to change the world so yeah hope that answers your question yes thank you so much for that Thresha. that was a really good question um i i suppose um so uh, i have a few action um steps that um our podcast would be interested in taking um Thresha is actually um uh, we haven't done elections yet, but she's very interested in leading the fundraising efforts for our Seeking Refuge podcast. And because we're at a very large university of around 40,000 people, we have the capability of holding fundraisers. And um, so like what you mentioned before about needing snacks for your after school program, that is something that our podcast would love to um, love to attempt to tackle uh, and um, you know uh, help like bring more stacks in that program because we understand the need. Um, so I was wondering, uh, first off, like do you have um, a website that we can link uh, in the description of our podcast episode for um, listeners to maybe donate to uh, the program? I do, I do. Um, it is if you Google Refugee Empowerment Program Memphis. So our website should pop up and it should be repmemphis.org. So this website is where you can find a, find out about the different programs that we offer to learn more about our organization, our mission, our values, how it is that we started, what our vision is in terms of empowering refugees and immigrants here in Memphis, Tennessee, and what we have done so far in our 20 years of existence. Um, I think when you go to that website, you'll see how unique our organization is and how we are true about making sure our actions match the words in which we're saying. We are very passionate about refugees and immigrants of all nationalities and different backgrounds and, and cultures and religions. And no matter what, our doors are open to those who need help. Um, we are an organization that walks alongside people because our staff are former refugees and immigrants themselves who have faced um, some of the most traumatic experience there is. And so we understand what it means to have somebody be there for us, walk alongside us, 
and to empower us in a way in which we feel control of. So visit us at repmemphis.org where you can find out more. You can also donate on there. Uh, there's the volunteer page for those that might want to do uh, volunteering. So that could either be through Zoom or something like that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be in person, uh, but uh, we invite any efforts to continue to make this world a better place for all. Yes, thank you so much for that. And then that um, leads me to my next question. Um, so I mentioned before about how our listeners can be refugees or displaced people themselves or refugee activists. Uh, so I was wondering, how can um, how can those listeners gain access to your services? Uh, do you have like a specific link on the website that um, we can include in the description or um, yeah, just any type of like uh, method like that? Yes, so there should be a contact us on that um, webpage where you can contact our staff about any issues you might have. Uh, now, I will say that our organization primarily works in Memphis, Tennessee, but by me being part of Refugee Congress and, and other um, organizations, I can try to connect you with um, service providers in your city or your state so that you can have someone with you to be able to um, empower you. Of course, if you have any questions about sort of navigating um, the US and how as a refugee and an immigrant, you can find the support systems that is there, or if you just need somebody to listen to, right? Feel free to, to reach out to me I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. And then if you send a email through uh, the website, just include my name as the person in which you want to get in contact with. Um, I have lived a life in which I understand suffering and I understand ostracization and being discriminated against. And so there's nothing in which you might say or any sort of character that you might have in which I would say, you know, you are not worth um, listening to or um, building community with or friendship with. Um, I truly believe that each person is valuable. And when needs are there, I want to try my best to meet those needs. So um, please feel free to reach out to me. And I look forward um, to anyone that does. And, and, I, and I hope that I can uh, be of help to you. Yes, thank you. I'll be sure to include all of that information in the description. And um, if we're able to do any social media pushes um, with uh, that information as well. So now um, I suppose it's just like um, space uh, for you to talk about anything that we may not have covered in this interview. Um, it can just, it can be anything um, as this interview is yours and yours to customize. Yeah, as I said, thank you again for the unique opportunity to be a part of this podcast. It's not too often that you see college students who are leading a, a push um, to bring refugee voices um, into areas in which they've never been before. And so the ability to have individuals listen to us, to be able to allow us to create our narrative and share our narrative um, is a step into showing refugee immigrants that their voice matters, um, their story matters, and they have the right to be able to share it and express it in a way in which they know, which is true to them. 
Um, for those that are listening, I want to say refugees and immigrants are a unique group of people that are beautiful in all regards, and they have a, a heart and a soul that really uh, that really touches you. Um, and so, no matter their age, uh, rather they're young or old, they bring a asset to the communities in which um, they are a part of. And so if you ever have the opportunity to uh, engage with a refugee and immigrant, enter it with a humbleness, enter it with a with the knowledge that these people have a story. Uh, and a lot of times they might not know their story and they might have traumatic experiences within it. And so if you do ask questions, ask it from a genuine uh, humble perspective, right? Don't go into it trying to exploit a story, right? Um, but go into it with the hopes of building a, a connection in which uh, develops the ability to allow you, you both to be vulnerable, but also in your vulnerability, know that um, you won't be sort of exploited for it. Communities these days, we need community. We are all individuals, part of billions of other individuals. And so I don't think that we were just created to be by ourselves, um, but be in community. And so I hope as your days move forward, as your years grow older, that you find your community, you find your people, you find those in which you can be yourself with, um, and those that can hear you um, and listen to you. Um, because I know how important that is. And so as I close off on this podcast, I, I do want to say that um, from Isaac James here in Memphis, Tennessee, if you don't have anyone, you have this one random guy that cares about you, um, that, that says you're valuable, that says you are worth um, anything and everything. And I hope that my message will allow you to move forward. Um, if you're a refugee or immigrant, or you're not a refugee or immigrant. Um, I understand life is hard, um, but don't give up. Uh, keep pushing forward. And I hope that you find all the beauty in this life um, in your days ahead. Thank you so much for that. That was a really beautiful note to end on. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, Trisha, do you have any last minute questions that we can ask Isaac? Okay, I don't, but again, thank you so much for sharing. That was really impactful and beautiful to hear. We really enjoy talking to you and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. That was me, Thrisha Moe, and Anusha Ghosh speaking with Isaac James, who works with the Refugee Empowerment Program. We discussed a range of topics, from the refugee initiatives Isaac is involved in to his unique experiences connecting with refugees through tutoring. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at our University of South Carolina email address, S-O-S-R-P-A at mailbox.sc.edu. Please look at the bio of this episode to find links to get involved with the Refugee Empowerment Program, including a link to an Amazon list that includes snacks for Isaac's aftercare program. You can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook.
This show is produced by undergraduate students at the University of South Carolina. Your hosts for this week were Anusha Ghosh and Thrusha Moat. This episode was edited by Emily Jensen and produced by Jackie Burnett. Our executive producers are Claire Matz and Victoria Halsey. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.